Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. My guest today is Dr. Stephen Amstrup, Chief Scientist for Polar Bears International, PBI, a polar bear conservation organization. Before joining PBI, he was a research wildlife biologist with the United States Geological Survey at the Alaska Science Center in Anchorage, Alaska, where he led polar bear research for 30 years. He's a past chairman of the International Union for Conservation of Nature, IUCN, polar bear specialist group, and has been an active member of the group since 1980. It's been said that his specific interests include distribution and movement patterns, as well as population dynamics of wildlife and how information on those topics can assure wise stewardship. I think it's fair to say polar bears represent the species that's become the face of climate change, so we'll frame part of this conversation with that notion in mind, exploring the current status of these animals and what the future may hold for them when I speak with a veteran bona fide expert, Dr. Stephen Amstrup, in a few moments here on Talking Animals on WMNF. Later in today's program, I'll speak with Sharan Favaza, who runs Rusty's Furry Companion and Lutes based pet sitting and dog walking business. But for today's purposes, we're chatting in her role as an organizer of Pets in the Park, an event happening this Saturday, March 5th at Heritage Park in Lando Lakes, featuring pets, music, speakers, vendors, and more, including an element that will help benefit the organization Corsos for Heroes. More on this a bit later in today's show. Right now, though, let's talk polar bears with Dr. Amstrup with the reminder that I invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663, emailing dj at wmnf.org or texting 813-433-0885. This is Dr. Stephen Amstrup on Talking Animals on WMNF. Good morning, Dr. Amstrup. Good morning, Duncan. Thanks for joining us on Talking Animals. I really appreciate it. Well, I'm always happy to talk about polar bears, so I'm looking forward to it. Okay, great. Well, so tracking the sort of the broad contours of your career path, there's clearly a longstanding fascination with animals, but I'm wondering just how longstanding. For example, how did you feel about animals just generally as a kid? Well, I, uh, I was always intrigued by wildlife and uh, bears in particular, actually. I think a part of my uh, uh, background that I have to go back to is watching Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom okay. on television. Yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, was, that was a, a weekly thing. Uh, I remember that uh, when I was five years old or something like that, I'd already made up my mind I wanted to go into the woods and study bears. Wow. And, uh, That's pretty yeah. precocious, uh, Dr. Amstrup. Yeah, it's a very early thing. I, I think I'm, I feel quite fortunate that I'm one of the few people who has sort of, <clears throat> excuse me, been able to uh, pursue a lifelong uh, dream. Were there other animals that were, that? I mean, it sounds like it was bears for you almost from the get-go, but were there other animals that were of interest? What was the attitude, for example, about animals in your family when you were, when you were a kid growing up. Well, we uh, we lived in the outskirts of the Twin Cities, uh, Minneapolis, St. Paul, and uh, so we had a lot of opportunity to just go roaming around in the country. My brother and I spent a lot of time uh, just poking around, and uh, uh, it was always exciting to flush a pheasant or uh, see a grouse or uh, 
a raccoon or whatever uh, that we might see in that local area. Yeah. And uh, uh, we were always encouraged to pursue our interests. And from the beginning, mine was kind of uh, very interested in wildlife. Uh, bears were sort of a hallmark, but I always figured that if there were habitats that could support bears, they were probably habitats that could support uh, all kinds of other life that we uh, are very interested in and uh, uh, appreciate. So in some ways, that sounds like that the bears for, for you represented, like, if there's bears over here, there's other interesting wildlife, too. And since I mentioned wildlife, although primarily bears, this is going to be kind of a bonanza for me. Yes, I think that summarizes it. Okay. And so... When did you first become interested in polar bears, more specifically than just bears generally? Well, I was uh, working for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Wyoming, and at that time I was actually studying pronghorn antelope, but I had worked on black bears for my master's, and uh, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife at that time had been trying to get a polar bear research program going in Alaska, and um, I was asked if I'd be interested in going up there and, and trying to get it going. And, uh, of course, I thought, well, uh, large, you know, giant white bears roaming around on an environment that looks like the surface of the moon, what could be more exciting? <laughs> uh, you know, I viewed it as kind of the ripest form in the wildlife profession at that time. And, of course, I said, pick me, pick me. And, and they did. in uh, 1980, yeah. Yeah. And so one of the things that I, I was thinking about in preparation for speaking with you is if someone is going to devote themselves to studying polar bears, they're are only so many places to do so. And, of course, all those places are uh, inherently, obviously, very, very cold. Um, did you ever have any qualms about being required to head up to or, or be based in, if not live in Alaska? Or did you ever experience any form of, I guess, fatigue, for lack of a better term, maybe, from being based there to fulfill the sort of professional and academic obligations that went with studying polar bears? No, I, I have to say I never really never really thought of it that way. The cold was just part of the challenge. And, uh, you know, polar bears are indeed an animal that depends on having a cold environment. And um, so that was just that was just part of the game, and I wasn't intimidated. And, you know, uh, if you think about cold weather versus other kinds of weather, it's relatively easy to dress uh, to protect yourself from the cold. Uh, I think perhaps easier than it is to protect yourself from uh, being soaking wet. And uh, so, yeah, I, I, I wasn't uh, intimidated at all and, and, in fact, enjoyed the challenge. Yeah, and also I guess the fact that you grew up in the Twin Cities, you're already fairly accustomed to some cold days. We had some cold days when I was a kid. I, I distinctly remember those, and I remember digging snow forts into the berms that were created when the snow plows came through the neighborhood and things like that. So yeah. I was... I was ready. Yeah, so you were pretty conversant with those kind of temperatures and how to how to kind of move around and cope and, and improvise, sounds like. So when you first went up there, you were asked to go up there and, and kind of get that program launched. Talk about your very first year or two uh, up there studying polar bears. I mean, what were the chief things that were known about polar bears in those earliest years? And I'm sure... More to the point, what were some of the key things that, that people didn't know and that you were kind of had set out to research early on? Well, there, there's always been a captivation going uh, way back to the earliest thoughts about, uh, uh, earliest thoughts by scientists anyway about polar bears as to how many polar bears are there 
and uh, where, in fact, the polar bears live. And perhaps one of the most important is where the polar bears go to give birth. At the time that I went up to Alaska, uh, we knew that polar bears uh, gave birth in winter dens, typically along shorelines in the, the high Arctic regions. Um, but we didn't know where denning areas were in Alaska. And so that was uh, one of my principal challenges, was to try and find out uh, where mother bears go to give birth to their cubs. And uh, one thing that's different about polar bears compared to the other bears, you think of black bears and brown bears, uh, they enter dens in the wintertime because the things that they normally eat are unavailable when they're frozen and covered by snow. Uh, But polar bears feed on seals that they catch from the surface of the sea ice. So theoretically, those are available all year round. And polar bears uh, den specifically for reproduction. Only pregnant females den for extended periods. They go into a secure place uh, to give birth to their cubs in uh, the late autumn, early winter, and come out in the spring. The rest of the population, the adult males, females that that, uh, aren't pregnant, or, uh, and females that have uh, older cubs with them already, they will stay out uh, uh, active on the sea ice through the winter uh, trying to catch more seals. Um, but where they went, that was, that was a big challenge, and that was one of the first things that I really set my sights on uh, uh, when I went north. And so how did you answer that question? Just sort of follow them closely, track them? I mean, obviously not too closely, but I mean, like, how did you answer those questions uh, about where they did then? Well, the biggest, uh, the biggest asset that we had was uh, radio telemetry, putting radio collars on bears and following them around to document where they lived and, in this case, especially where they went to give birth to their cubs. Uh, my earlier background working on uh, black bears in Idaho and then on uh, pronghorn antelope in Wyoming uh, had depended on radio telemetry, putting collars out and then following them, uh, following the animals. And uh, so I had a strong background in the application of radio telemetry, and I was able to be the first person, actually, to successfully follow polar bears by radio telemetry. Wow. Now, of course, now, of course, uh, it's being done all over the world. And um, uh, a lot of what we know about polar bears, we know because of radio telemetry. Uh, You can imagine uh, polar bears mostly live out on the sea ice far away from any human settlements, far away from land. And uh, so you have to have some way, if you want to understand their movements, you have to have some way of keeping track of them when they're not uh, visible through your binoculars, for example. Right, or otherwise uh, more readily accessible. So the radio telemetry really kind of says, hey, even if they're out on the ice somewhere kind of inaccessible, at least we know where they are at this moment. Yeah, and uh, you know, initially we uh, followed uh, we followed polar bears by putting a collar that just gave a simple beep beep signal, and we had to follow them by aircraft. Uh, that was an interesting challenge in itself because the small airplanes that typically people can use to radio track uh, animals in other habitats just couldn't keep up with polar bears. Uh, 
my early work showed that uh, uh, some polar bears had activity areas the size of Montana. Uh, so trying to follow them around with a super cub just wasn't going to work. And we went to progressively bigger and faster aircraft in order to do that. But wow. then in 19, 1986, uh, we saw the advent of satellite radio telemetry uh, at a level that we could apply it to polar bears. And ever since then, we've been able to put collars on bears that we can then uh, follow uh, from a desk in the office uh, using uh, satellite links. So that was a real asset as well as the boon or the, the move from uh, conventional radio telemetry to satellite radio telemetry. And also, Dr. Amstrup, with the uh, aircraft, especially early on, it sounded like that was really the only way you got a chance to kind of keep up. But I'm wondering if, especially those early versions of aircraft, were they also something that kind of hampered in some ways tracking the bears in that just that they were probably louder and, and not, not nearly as nimble as the later aircraft you would probably end up using? So did they actually affect some of the ability to, to track the bears just because they might have in some cases disturb the bears? Well, we were always very careful to not uh, approach close enough that we would alter a bear's behavior when we were radio tracking. Usually it was just a matter of getting a uh, visual confirmation, yep, that's where the bear is, and marking the location, and that could be done from fairly high altitude. Uh, sometimes we actually did kind of an aerial triangulation rather than even descending down to the sea ice, but getting uh, an angle from different positions while you were in the air, you could get an approximate location of where the bear was. And, you know, when polar bears are roaming around on the sea ice, the ice is also moving, so there are no other landmarks. You know, you can't say, oh, well, this bear is, is right next to this particular river or right next to this particular ridge. Uh, the habitat is always moving and changing. So uh, in those early years, we were just happy to know what part of the world the bear was in, really. Yeah. And then uh, our methods became more and more refined. And, then, and now with radio telemetry based on satellites, we get a GPS signal of, from the bears, and uh, so we know very precisely where they are. And it sounded like from what you said earlier that, that even at the preliminary stages of some of this uh, radio telemetry, that maybe it was even surprising, like the amount of land they would cover. I think you referred to something the size of Montana, like would be well, at least one or more bears would cover that kind of ground in a, in a given period. Yeah, that's true. There were some earlier attempts to follow polar bears by radio telemetry, and this was before the, the days of satellites, and uh, collars were put on bears, and then the bears just disappeared. Uh. Nobody really knew where they were because people were trying to follow them with, uh, you know, small Cessnas or Super Cub aircraft that just couldn't fly far enough to keep up with the bears. So we went to uh, much larger, faster aircraft, modified antenna systems so that they could fit on these high-speed aircraft. And then we were able to say, oh, my gosh, <laughs> these animals are really moving around. It sounds like that was kind of surprising once the, the, that information became clear and known to you that, that they were covering that much ground. Yeah, the, the early revelations uh, that I made about uh, uh, the movements of polar bears were indeed surprising. You know, before telemetry, uh, the movements of polar bears were assessed by uh, putting physical tags, capturing the bears, putting ear tags in them, and then uh, 
finding where those bears might have been harvested by uh, local native hunters. And so mm-hmm. you were basically limited to uh, where you captured a bear, which was always pretty close to land, and then where that bear might have been harvested uh, by uh, local native people sometime later, which would also have been fairly close to land. So the idea that these animals might be hundreds of miles offshore at different times of the year, we just didn't, we didn't know about that. So it really sounds like early on, the kind of preliminary research that was being done before uh, telemetry was introduced was kind of broad and almost by definition sort of not inaccurate necessarily, but certainly limited in its accuracy just because the research methods themselves were kind of limited at that point. Yeah, that's right. It was... Uh uh, you know, we uh, when I first went to Alaska in 1980 to study polar bears, we were really still at the cusp of trying to learn how to study them. So it wasn't it wasn't even a matter then of really getting the best enumerations or the best understanding of survival rates or things like that. It was how do we do that? Mm. Uh, you know, and so during that that uh, the decade of the 80s, uh, polar bear studies really came along, not just in Alaska uh, where I was working, but uh, all across the uh, all across the globe where uh, people were interested in study studying polar bears. The methods were really being refined. Yeah. Well, so you, you've you've spent decades in in the field and conducted all kinds of studies and written all kinds of uh, scholarly articles. So let's talk about some of the things that early on, maybe like you say, not just in Alaska, but that's of course where you were where you were based. But just generally, so early on, I guess you start off saying you were kind of looking into how how and where they the denning took place. And they also, of course, found out the incredible movement that they were actually uh, experiencing, which you had no way to know before that. What were some other early on or otherwise some notable things that were revealed from the, the research as you refined the research methods themselves? Well, the, um, I guess the, one of the most profound observations that I made uh, during my years in Alaska was uh, comparing what I was seeing in the habitat near the end of my uh, of my time in Alaska, which I, I left Alaska in 2010. Um, uh, but between then and 1980, when I went up there, the habitat was so profoundly different. Uh, in the early years, my first several years in Alaska, I could stand on the north coast of Alaska at Prudhoe Bay or Point Barrow and look offshore in the at the end of the summer, and I could see the sea ice. The sea ice would be maybe a few miles offshore, sometimes maybe as many as 20 or 30, it depended on the year. But you could usually see the sea ice from the land. Now, with global warming and reduced sea ice, what we're seeing is uh, no ice at all. The ice is so far offshore in the summertime now that uh, it's beyond the curvature of the Earth. Even the most powerful of telescopes couldn't see it for you. So So, uh, that's kind of a, a, a... Go ahead. No, I was going to just make sure I'm clear here. So even by way of telescope, now when you're in that same position that you were early on, you still can't see the sea ice. That's how far away it's gotten. Yeah, it's beyond the it's beyond the curvature of the Earth. So, wow. You know, all, all you can see is water, uh, hundreds of miles offshore. And uh, of course, polar bears historically in Alaska depended on that nearshore ice throughout the Arctic. The uh, the 
greatest productivity is in the shallow waters that are nearest shore. And uh, historically, uh, polar bears in Alaska could stay on that Uh, on the ice over that shallow water all summer long, and they could continue to feed all summer long. Now there's uh, extended periods in the summer when the ice is just not available and there's in those near shore areas. Uh, Polar bears drift way offshore into the deep polar pack where we know uh, from recent studies that they aren't feeding, or they come ashore and hang out on land, and there's really nothing for them to eat on land. So uh, that visual observation is, uh, you know, when you understand that polar bears depend on the sea ice to catch their prey, uh, realizing that the sea ice is no longer there where they used, where the bears used to be, uh, you, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to realize that might be a problem. Wow. Well, I want to explore that a little more deeply in a moment. I just want to let the folks know who might just have tuned in recently. This is Talking Animals. I'm Duncan Strauss. If you did just tune in, my guest is Dr. Stephen Amstrup, Chief Scientist for Polar Bears International, a polar bear conservation organization. Over the course of his career, he's conducted research on polar bears for more than 30 years. If you'd like to ask Dr. Amstrup a question or offer a comment about polar bears, please call 813-239-9663, email dj at wmnf.org, or text 813 so as I mentioned at the top of the show, Dr. Amstrup, polar bears have really uh, become the face uh, in terms of a species of climate change. And, th- and what you just mentioned sort of hooks right into this. So tell me in as much detail as you care to what, what, what the current status of the polar bear really is. I mean, if, if you can't see the sea ice, even with a telescope, uh, that would seem to portend pretty dark things uh, along the lines of what many have said about climate change and using polar bears often as a direct kind of example or symbol. Uh, So how does scientific reality compare with the dire warnings we've been hearing and reading and seeing? Well, so uh, if we step back for a minute, polar bears have what's called a circumpolar distribution. They live around the world uh, in an area that is centered on the North Pole. And uh, in that area, uh, you know, there are 19 separate defined subpopulations of polar bears. Uh, Some of these are very far north. Some of them, uh, the southernmost polar bear uh, subpopulation in southern Hudson Bay is about at the same latitude as Scotland. So it's quite far south, but because it's inside a very cold continent, uh, polar bears have been able to to survive there. as we might expect, as the sea ice is declining. And remember, polar bears feed on two species of seals, principally, that they can only catch from the surface of the ice. So if the ice isn't there, polar bears are fasting. Mm. Uh, And uh, anyway, so uh, uh, as the ice has been retreating because of global warming, uh, we've seen that uh, some of the more southerly areas and some areas like uh, the northern coast of Alaska where currents tend to take the ice away from the coast quickly in the summertime, um, we've seen some pretty dramatic negative effects on uh, uh, the populations. In other areas, farther north, in areas uh, where currents may not be moving the ice as rapidly, uh, we haven't seen yet uh, as profound an effect. Uh, but our studies indicate that uh, as the sea ice continues to decline, if we don't arrest global warming, if we don't uh, get our act together and uh, 
you know, halt the growth in our uh, in our uh, greenhouse gas concentrations in the atmosphere. Yeah. Uh, we will see uh, that by the end of the century, nearly all of the populations will either be, all of the, these 19 subpopulations will either be uh, gone or at the cusp of their um, uh, basic thresholds of being able to survive. Uh, when the ice is away, polar bears are fasting. They, they don't have much to eat, and they lose about a kilogram of body weight, nearly two pounds of body weight a day mm. uh, uh, when they're fasting. And, you know, they can only do that for so long. Yeah. And then they're just in, in rough shape. Yeah. And so <clears throat> there are still... Uh, it's important to think about polar bears having this great uh, latitudinal and regional distribution because, uh, you know, the, I think that uh, simplistically some people will think, oh, well, all polar bears are in the same boat. And, in fact, that's not true. Uh, we know that, uh, like with all animals, there's kind of a bell-shaped curve of ideal habitat. And some of the far northern regions of polar bears' range, polar bears' historic range, uh, may have been sort of on one end of the ability of polar bears to survive there because the ice was too heavy, too thick, or too long each year. Uh, so polar bears were kind of eking out an existence. As the world warms, southern areas um, might be seeing very rapid changes that are having a direct impact on their population negatively. In some of these far northern areas, we might actually expect to see transient improvement in their conditions. And scientists do think that there may be two subpopulations of polar bears in the very far north that actually are uh, the population size may be growing now. But the important thing is that as long as the world continues to warm, those conditions can only get worse. And a population that may, uh, in a temporal, a temporary sense, uh, benefit from a warming climate will ultimately be suffering the same fate as those that are already at the cusp of losing enough ice to survive. And Dr. Amstrup, uh, if you already said this, uh, forgive me, but... Um, I know you said that there's two two species of seal that, that the polar bears feed on. Is it only those two species amongst all 19 populations of polar bears that you referred to? No, uh, the two species of seals that I mentioned, the ringed seal and the bearded seal, compose uh, globally probably uh, around 90% of the, of the polar bears' uh, diet. But there is some significant variation. There are other marine mammals that polar bears uh, will eat. Uh, certainly they will take advantage of uh, uh, dead marine mammals like uh, large whales that might uh, wash up on shore. Yeah. Uh, so there are other things, but if you look across the distribution of polar bears, the, the, uh, the species that really support them are mainly ringed seals and then secondarily bearded seals. Yeah. And those are both seals that are heavily dependent on the sea ice cover as well. We call them pegophilic seals or ice-loving seals. And it's kind of funny, actually, if you uh, are uh, out in the uh, Arctic in the time of the year when the ice is refreezing rapidly, um, you'll see ring seals. There'll be open water 
uh, adjacent to where new ice is forming, but they'll be making breathing holes in that ice, even though they could just come up and breathe in the open water a few feet away. And that's because they know that ultimately uh, the whole ocean is going to be largely frozen, and so they have to get those breathing holes started, and they have to maintain them through the winter. So they're planning uh, they, ahead, then? They're planning ahead, absolutely. Yeah. And when you watch it, you think, how does that make any sense? But here, there's open water right here, and, and 20 feet away, they're making breathing holes in the new ice. Yeah, because they're, they're smart. But, yeah. yeah, yeah, they've figured that out over the millennia. Yeah. So, uh, Dr. Amstead, one of our emails that will come in, we'll try to get to some others as well, it says, Amazing guest, what should we be doing to help polar bears? We have spent some time in Churchill, Manitoba, and we're amazed at how much their presence is felt there. Thank you for your work. So I guess one of the things that, that you've noted just more broadly is that if we don't get global warming in check, it's pretty uh, much doom for those polar bear populations. But are there other things, yeah. uh, as this emailer asked, that we could do uh, within that or in addition to that? Yeah, so uh, clearly the the ultimate challenge for polar bears is to halt global warming because their habitat uh, literally melts as temperatures rise. Yeah. But as, as habitat on the sea ice is declining, we're seeing more and more conflicts with humans on land. So you've got more bears spending more time on land, and the longer they spend on land, the hungrier they are. So there's always this potential for conflicts between humans and bears, and we know of that in uh, the lower 48 states as well with black bears and grizzly bears. Um, and uh, so there are things that we can do, and one of the most important is to try and uh, minimize the negative interactions. You know, typically if a bear is threatening people, the bear ends up getting shot. And uh, currently at Polar Bears International, we're working on... Uh, some uh, early detection systems that might help people that live in small northern villages be able to know that a polar bear is coming into town uh, before they can actually see it. Uh, often you can uh, you can imagine that in the wintertime it's often uh, foggy, snowy, cloudy. You can't see very well, especially if you're trying to look for a white bear on a white surface. Yeah, uh, And so we've been testing a, a radar a system, a ground-based radar system that might detect an advancing polar bear coming into the communities and alert people. And then they could go out and chase it away before it enters the town and becomes a real serious threat. So that's one of the things. And, of course, the other thing is that, as I mentioned early on, uh, polar bears den almost entirely on land in near coastal areas. And uh, many of these areas are areas that are potentially threatened by new developments. And one that uh, clearly has gotten a lot of attention in the United States is the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge has long been known uh, as the single most important denning area for polar bears in Alaska. And yet that area is, uh, you know, threatened by the potential uh, development of oil and gas up there which could have a profound on-the-ground effect uh, for uh, of, uh, on polar bears at the same time that they're losing their habitat otherwise. And so whether we're talking about protecting uh, the places that polar bears go to reproduce or whether we're minimizing uh, bear-human interactions, our goal uh, is to try and preserve as many bears as we can 
until we hopefully uh, stabilize the climate. Uh, okay, I got you. So we've got some uh, callers. Let's get well, at least one involved in the conversation. Hi, you're on Talking Animals with Dr. Stephen Amstrup. Greetings, uh, Clayton and Thanks for the show, Duncan, and thanks for your work, Doc. Uh, I watched a documentary film, um, actually, I was on Climate Crisis, that um, called Cool It. I uh, don't know if you're familiar with it. But uh, anyway, they do talk specifically about polar bears because there's been a dramatic in- increase in global population over the last 50 or 60 years. And then in 1960, there was probably only about 5,000 polar bears in that global population. And to today, it's around 22 to 25,000 uh, polar bears. The biggest threat, though, that they point out to polar bears right now is hunting. Each year, we kill over 300 to 500 polar bears a shot. Isn't the best way to save polar bears is stop shooting them? Okay, caller, thank you for your question. Dr. Amstrup? Yeah, so um, the the caller has uh, brought up one of the great myths that is out there. Uh, you know, polar bears have become the poster uh, species for the dangers of global warming. And for those who don't want to do anything about global warming, for whatever reason, uh, polar bears have also uh, uh, become a uh, sort of a proxy to deny that warming is real. And one of the things that has commonly been brought up is that, oh, in the 50s and 60s, there were only five to 10,000 polar bears uh, in the world. And uh, there were some numbers in those early years that were thrown out as maybe this is how many polar bears there are. But nobody really took those numbers seriously uh, because we didn't have the study techniques then that we have now. And so what we're comparing is somebody's uh, essentially wild-ass guess about how many bears there might have been in those days uh, compared to quite good numbers for much of the, of the world's polar bear populations uh, right now. And uh, what we do know is that there are probably 20 to 25,000 or maybe more polar bears in the world. We really have no idea how many there might have been back in uh, the 1950s and 60s. Uh, those early estimates were very crude. Uh, uh, the one that's most often quoted was a Russian researcher who was flying uh, aerial transects over the uh, Arctic part of Russia and uh, in an aircraft that uh, couldn't fly very slow. Uh, we already know, or we subsequently know, that uh, polar bears are very difficult to census by flying over them when they're on the sea ice because you're looking for a white bear on a white surface. Uh, that researcher didn't see very many bears. He did some calculations and said, oh, well, maybe there's only five to 10,000 bears in the world. Uh, we know now that that was uh, totally inaccurate and unreliable. And uh, But people will say, oh, they'll point at that early uh, estimate, which was nothing more than a guess, and compare it to what we know now and say, oh, well, the population has increased. Mm. No, the population hasn't increased. What we know is that we have better estimates now than we had then. Yeah, and there are there are places that polar bears indeed have increased. Uh, and for example, uh, the, my 
contrast, in my early years, I was documenting the recovery of the Alaskan polar bear populations from excessive harvests that had occurred in the 50s and 60s. When harvest came under control with the passage of the Marine Mammal Protection Act in 1973, the population started to grow. And by the time I got to Alaska in the early 1980s, I could document that the population was thriving. But then we saw the turnaround. 20 years later, sea ice uh, loss became a significant issue. And uh, my latest studies showed how the population in Alaska was declining. Mm. Uh, So, you know, if you look at some parts of the Arctic, indeed, as I mentioned a little while ago, uh, some areas we could expect to see an increase. Now, to to get to the the caller's final point of harvesting polar bears has gone on for centuries, and um, currently... Over most of the polar bear range, the number of bears being taken is in balance with the ability of the population to sustain it. Polar bears, like all wildlife, can be harvested in a sustainable fashion if their habitat is adequate. Uh, And that's the way uh, fish and game departments all across the country manage their wildlife. They determine how many deer or moose or whatever it happens to be uh, can be harvested on a sustainable basis, and they shoot for that. Uh, in the case of polar bears, uh, you know, many people think, oh, we shouldn't be shooting polar bears, but Native people living across the north have been shooting them for millennia or killing them uh, you know, for a long period of time. Uh, and uh, the current harvest, are pretty well managed. Uh, Harvest is kind of a distraction from the real issue. Many people who don't want to see polar bears being shot uh, will make a big noise about uh, uh, polar bears shouldn't be killed, Uh, and then that becomes a distraction from the real issue, which is society getting its act together and halting global warming. Yeah, because it sounds like unlike with some other species where there's, you know, uh, I guess a certain number that that are uh, permitted to be killed, that the polar bears have an additional factor that is more, way more pronounced than probably any other species, which is, as we've talked about, the global warming, the, the ice disappearing, the things that are threatening their numbers that have nothing to do with people with a gun, in addition to if people are still shooting them, then those numbers are coming, you know, dropping from two different angles. Sure. And, you know, it is important to realize that that that, uh, sustainable population that I was mentioning a while ago, that depends on having stable quality habitat. Yeah. And we don't have stable quality habitat for polar bears in many areas now. And if we allow the world to continue to warm, we won't have... Uh, sufficient habitat for polar bears anywhere. Yeah. Well, so Dr. Amsep, we're sort of in, in the home stretch of our time here. We've got a minute or two, I would say. Left. So one of the things I certainly want to be sure to ask you, at least for a brief uh, uh, summary or answer, is what, what what exactly is Polar Bears International? Can you kind of just describe uh, briefly the organization and what its mission is? Yeah, Polar Bears International is a a small conservation organization dedicated to the conservation of polar bears worldwide. 
Uh, we Our mission is to preserve polar bears and their sea ice habitat uh, around the Arctic. And what that means is that Polar Bears International does uh, and supports research that will help inform what we need to do to uh, protect polar bears in different areas. And uh, even more important than that, we are a great educational and outreach organization uh, to convey to the general, working to convey to the general public what we need to do in order to preserve polar bears into the future. So we are, I, I like to say we're largely an educational organization that uh, also does research to help inform uh, the uh, material that we put out in our education. Yeah, and it certainly seems like that's the case because with someone with your uh, incredible uh, knowledge and experience and all the years researching out in the field, uh, what you're saying about what the current status is and what the what the uh, actual threat of global warming is versus, you know, other people might be banding things about generally about global warming or whatever, but, but you're, you're drawing a direct, explicit parallel and, and issuing a warning uh, about if global warming isn't curtailed, uh, clearly what the explicit outcome is going to be for those 19 populations of polar bears. So it's very clear and educational, and it's fact-based and science-based, which is, I think, extremely important. Yeah, um, we are... Uh very, very careful at Polar Bears International to make sure that whatever we say, whatever we do, is based upon the best available current science. Yeah. And uh, I, I should mention, uh, you know, the, with regard to that uh, uh, call that uh, I addressed a little bit ago, yeah. there was a recent uh, article that came out online uh, by the organization AFP. Uh, you can go to factcheck.afp.com and see a very nice summary of uh, the uh, sort of the myths that are surrounding polar bears and uh, showing the evidence that suggests that those myths about uh, polar bear populations having dramatically increased or things like that, that, that those myths are not true. And uh, it's a really nice piece. Uh, if there are any listeners out there that would like to uh, get a, a summary of uh, the uh, kinds of things that uh, have been incorrectly stated about polar bears, uh, that's a great place to go. Factcheck.afp.com. Okay, well, that's perfect. That might be exactly the right uh, point at which to leave this conversation. And, of course, we should also mention that the website for Polar Bears International is simply polarbearsinternational.org. We've been speaking with Dr. Stephen Amstrup, Chief Scientist for Polar Bears International. And, uh, Dr. Amstrup, I've certainly learned a lot. I'm going to guess that uh, anybody listening probably has, has as well. So really appreciate your time and um, joining us today on Talking Animals, and thank you so much. Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me, and uh, uh, we certainly invite uh, uh, all the listeners to uh, visit our website at polarbearsinternational.org, where we also have the fact-checking, but uh, all of the amazing information about polar bears uh, on our website, I think your listeners will find intriguing and uh, and relevant. Yeah, it's a it's a deep, uh, rich uh, website and, and terrific. So I highly recommend visiting that. Thank you again, Doctor Amstrup. Well, thank you for your time, Duncan. I really enjoy it. Thank you. Me too. Thanks so much. Bye bye. Bye bye. 
In a moment, I'll speak with Sharan Favaza, one of the key organizers of Pets in the Park, a multifaceted event happening this Saturday, March 5th, at Lando Lakes Heritage Park. We'll hear some details from Sharan in a moment. Right now, we're going to step into the comedy corner with a comic making his Talking Animals debut. His name is Sammy Obeyed, and his piece is partly about polar bears. Well, sort of. This is Sammy Obeyed with Aberica in today's Comedy Corner on Talking Animals on WMNF. I don't dig deep into political stuff. I have uh, one of my friends, is, he's an environmentalist, which is cool, but he's always complaining. He's like, the polar bears have feelings too. The polar bears are just like people. When the ice caps melt, where are the polar bears gonna go? Dude, come on. If, if bears are just like people, I'm sure the polar bears will be okay. Right? <laughs> well, no, because I, because I figured they would just take land from the grizzly bears, <laughs> have the black bears do all the work. <laughs> and uh, have the panda bears build them railroads. I, That's not racist, just it's a bear joke. There's no bears here. You can laugh. <laughs> it's a hypothetical situation where bears make a country. <laughs> Call it a barica. What more do you want? <laughs> we can elect a half polar bear, half black bear president, right? <laughs> Obama, right guys? Come on. Right, well, we're having trouble reaching Sharan, unfortunately, so um, we're going to carry on with another part of the show, and maybe we'll catch up with her. Anyways, we did hear uh, Sammy Obeyed in today's comedy corner with a piece called Aberica, taken from a performance at the Laugh Factory. And uh, so we're going to move right into uh, Name That Animal Tune and uh, see if we can still connect with Sharan before the end of this show. This is uh, Name That Animal Tune. We'll be offering something from the Talking Animals Vault to the first person who calls 813-239-9663 and correctly identifies this animal song. It's named an animal tune on Talking Animals. Actually, we're going to wait one more sec in case we have Sharana calling in. Hold on one sec. We'll be right back. All right, I think we have Sharan that we can uh, welcome momentarily. So she's going to be telling us briefly about Pets in the Park, which is taking place this Saturday, March 5th in Lando Lakes. This is Sharan Favaza on Talking Animals on WF. Sharan, are you there? I am. Hello. Thank you for having me. All right. Uh, welcome to Talking Animals. So let's start with a bit of an overview. What's the history of, of, of pets in the park? Is this the first outing of it, or has it been offered in the past? No, this is actually the first annual um, Pets in the Park Expo that I planned with another business that does event planning. Oh, great. So what prompted you guys to, to launch Pets in the Park? That's a, it's a big, big undertaking. There's a lot of challenges for something on this, uh, on this uh, scope. Yeah, so I am, uh, I, I've been in the veterinary field for quite a while, and I started my business, and I've always been about educating clients and bringing information to clients to make being a pet owner easier for them. So that's where the pet expo bloomed to where I can bring those businesses 
to the owners to where they aren't having to search and get irritated or annoyed or just like, I don't know what to do or who to call. Yeah. So that's where the Pet Expo came in. Great. Well, let's talk about some of the key details before we run out of time here. We got a, obviously a late start when I couldn't reach initially. So let's just run down the key details for this Saturday. So it's this Saturday, March 5th. And tell us so the where and when and some of the other elements. Yeah, so it's, it's going to be at Heritage Park right off of 41 um, in Land O'Lakes. Mm-hmm. It's going to be from 10 to 2. And the speakers that I have uh, planned start at 1130. And those are local businesses that um, are here to help let you know about their business and how they can help you as um, as owners. As, as pet people, it sounds like. Correct. Yeah. You want to give a sample or two of a, a topic or a speaker that uh, is going to be part of that uh, lineup? Absolutely. So one of the speakers um, and sponsors is East West Animal Hospital. Okay. And what they do is they do Eastern and Western medicine for pets. So like your acupuncture um, and then traditional medicine um, to where it, it goes both ways for the owner to help their pet uh, better. Great. So they are also um, fear-free, and they're going to be talking about how that's important, um, being a fear-free clinic, along with how doing East and West medicine can help your pet. That's great. So before we uh, wrap up and need to say goodbye, um, Sharan, let's uh, talk about because another element of this that, that caught my eye is that the, the event also functions partly as a benefit for Corsos for Heroes. So maybe you could briefly yeah. describe that organization and why Pets in the Park is supporting it. So I uh, came across them about a year ago in the Loops magazine, and I am a military, come from a military family, and um, support first responders for, with my business big time. And I just loved what they did. And I didn't even know that they were here in Lutz. So when I read that in the magazine, I wanted to help support them and figure out a way how to get what they um, out there for other people. So Okay. So, Sharon, I'm sorry we, we have reached the end of our time, but it's a great organization. We interviewed them last uh, year, and they can, people can just search for Courses for Heroes, but I'm afraid we are out of time for today. But good luck Saturday with Pets in the Park. Thank you. All right, we have just about reached the end of Talk Animals on WMF Tampa. Please try to tune in next Wednesday when my guest will be Patrick Batuelo, founder and president of Horse Racing Wrongs, uh, which is interested in eradicating horse racing is talking animals on WMNF Tampa, NPR News, and then Scott Elliott.